Well, every day you and I encounter the stop sign. At some point, when we're driving, we find them. Um, for sure, it's something we see every day. It gets our attention. If we don't stop, there's consequences. Anyone in here ever run a stop sign? Okay, we're all having confession hour. It's great. Great way to start. Great way to start. Let's just get that out there. There's a stop sign in the old downtown part of Car- uh, Louis- Louisville um, that gets me every Thursday or Friday. Uh, I'm over there, and um, it's, it's an interesting one. It usually gets me uh, when I'm coming on the way home because the stop sign seems to be about 20, maybe 20 yards away from a turn, and so it catches me. And so there was this one day, I, uh, my oldest son was, was with me, um, and I, I think he'll probably remember this. Um, I, just, I just blatantly went right through it. Uh, and as we're going through it, he goes, uh, Dad, were you going to stop? And I was like, uh, yes. <laughs> and, um, but not that time. <laughs> and, uh, but it's interesting. I, I see this weekly. Uh, no, it's there. And it's still, I still, you know, right now, every time I go through it, or get, not go through it, every time I get to it, <laughs> Uh, only done that once, uh, maybe stopped in the middle twice, uh, but it just catches me, even though I know it's there, it just catches me. Uh, man, running the stop signs, obviously, that's, that's not good. I mean, there's great consequences, yeah, it can be very big consequences. Um, they're important. Warning signs are important. Warning sounds are important. We need them in life, obviously. Uh, we also need them when it comes to our relationship with God. Uh, we, we need spiritual stop signs, and, and God gives them to us. He gives us warnings throughout his word to get our attention, to get us to stop, but not just to stop, but to listen and to hear, but not just to listen and hear, but to ultimately obey. And if we don't, much like running a stop sign, we will find ourselves facing consequences. And so we've got to take warnings in Scripture um, very important. Uh, to see them that way. And so today, there's, there's a warning here, but it's interesting. It's, it's a very abrupt warning, uh, how it kind of interrupts the text. And it, I think it's done purposely uh, by God, uh, no doubt. Uh, and so we'll see that in uh, just a moment. But before we do, I, I want us to see how this psalm starts. It st- starts very similar to uh, a majority of psalms that we find throughout this, this great book. And so let's begin there this morning, if you would, with me, in Psalm 95, 1 through 2. As we're called, we're invited to worship. Um, And so listen to what the psalmist says. He says, Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with thanksgiving. Psalms. And so the worship leader, uh, the pastor, calls the readers, the congregation, to worship the Lord together. Uh, many of the Septuagint translators believe that the writer of this psalm is, is King David, and so that David is calling on the people to come and worship Yahweh. Yahweh, if you uh, remember, is that, that term we get uh, in the Hebrew language uh, that... Uh, many of the Hebrew writers uh, of, of old and people of old would say, you can't even write that name. It's so holy. Um, and if you look at Exodus 3, where God is uh, 
there with, with Moses. The, the burning bush experience happened, and he told Moses, this is who I am. And he said, I am who I am. And that's what Yahweh means. It's, it's the name of God. It's God who has always been and always will be, and that's who he is. He is the one true God. And so David is calling the people, the readers of this, even today, to come and to worship the one true God. It's a common call throughout the psalm. Psalm 34 verse 3 says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. So we're called to glorify the Lord, but specifically how? With, with joy, to joyfully uh, shout to the rock of our salvation, to joyfully sing praises unto him. As we come before his presence, whether it's uh, when we're with the Lord, meeting with him in prayer or reading scripture, where the Spirit of the Lord is, where the Spirit of the Lord dwells, that we can literally meet with Him. Um, as When two and more come together in a setting like this, that we're in the presence of God, and we are joyfully singing praises to Him. We're thanking God for who He is. Matthew twelve thirty four says, From the outer flow of the heart may the mouth speak. And so what is stored up in here, may it overflow in worship, is what we're called to do. Now, I've used that word worship a few times. You and I were created to worship God. That's our purpose. Real simply this morning, and we know that, but sometimes we got to go back to that. Be reminded of our purpose. As we start school, students, parents as well, what is our purpose ultimately? To worship God. God. And so even through our studies, even through our schoolwork, that we would worship God through our sporting events and, and other activities that we're involved in, that we would worship God. That's what we're created for. Now it's interesting as we look at this text, there's, there's two words that kind of come together, I think, as, as a theme. And, and it's, it's, it's worship and joy. I think here, if you were to kind of give a theme to these two verses, is, is that you and I are to worship God joyfully. And, and those two things go together. They don't ever compete against each other. In fact, they find their fullness in one another. And, and so what might that mean? I, I got a devotional uh, yesterday from Isabel, and I was reminded of the words of, of C.S. Lewis uh, in his reflections on the Psalms. And I want to read to you just a kind of a, a snippet of what he writes about the Psalms and this idea of worshiping the Lord joyfully and what may that mean to us. And he wrote this. He says, The most obvious fact about praise, and so praise in general, strangely escaped him, is what Lewis says. He says, I had never noticed that all enjoyment, all enjoyment, spontaneously overflows into praise of that thing being enjoyed. And so think about it. The world rings with praise. How might that look? So he tells us. He says, walkers praise the countryside as they walk by. Players praising their favorite game. We get that. Praise of weather. Oh, it's a, it's a beautiful day outside, right? The praise of wines. The praise of dishes. It's a great meal. The praise of actors. The praise of, of horses. That's for you, Noah. Praise of colleges. Okay? Praise of countries. Praise of historical personages. Praise of children. Uh, praise of flowers. Praise of mountains. Praise of rare stamps. Anyone stamp 
stamp collecting today. Praise of rare books, even sometimes praise of politicians, maybe not today. Praise of scholars, just, just a hit, just kidding, all right? I don't know what that meant. But anyway, um, he also goes on to say, he says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but listen to this, but completes the enjoyment. So he goes on to further explains. He says, it is its appointed consummation that, that what you enjoy, you praise. It's not out of compliment, think about this, that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed to one another. And so in other words, and here's the point, and I love Lewis's point, and I think this psalm captures this at the beginning. Worship is the consummation of joy. Our joy is not complete until it is expressed in worship. It is out of his love for us, God's love for us, that he created us for worship. He created you and I to worship. And so the question is, is, is do you get this? Do you understand what the psalmist is saying? He's saying this, if you find God to be of the greatest value and a true joy and a great treasure, then what he's saying is, let him know. Praise him. Shout joyfully to him. Right? And that's what he's saying. And so you and I, I are called to find God as our great joy and then to tell him. And so you think about what, what do we do on Sunday morning? And why do we sing? We sing because of that, because we have found God to be of the greatest of the greatest, that he is our great joy, that there is nothing else in this world that we find more enjoyment in than him. It doesn't mean we don't enjoy other things, no, but that we find him to be our greatest joy. And that's why it says in the Westminster Catechism that humankind's, mankind's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. John Piper says God is most glorified in us when we are what? Most satisfied in him. And, and so the psalmist is just saying, hey, you find God to be the greatest joy, then come and sing and shout joyfully. And so we do that throughout the week, Right? Worship throughout the week in different ways as we, we, we praise God in, in, in obedience. We, we praise God in our actions, how we live, the choices we make. That's why Romans 12 talks about worship not just being about a song that we sing, but about being about a life that we live in response to who he is and what he's done on our behalf. That we would be a living and holy sacrifice unto him. And so the psalmist says, come, come. Find God to be your greatest joy and to shout joyfully to him, thanking him for who he is. And then look what he continues to say in verse 3 through 5. He, he gives us uh, the, the reason of our worship, the reason of our praise. And he says in verse 3, For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. And, and so the invitation to worship in verses 1 through 2 is because of what? God is great. And he is the greatest of all. He is superior over all other gods. There is none greater than him. 
This psalm right here is what many call an enthronement psalm. Uh, Psalm 47, Psalm 93, and then Psalm 95 through 99 are enthronement psalms. And they're they're psalms that declare that God reigns over all, that he has supremacy over all things. And how do we see that here? Well, look at uh, verse uh, 3. It says, in whose hand, and so God, in whose hand are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountain. What does that mean, in whose hand? Um, it, it means literally his sphere of influence, his sphere of, uh, excuse me, his sphere of authority, that he has authority over the depths of the earth and the peaks of the mountain. So you think about that, he, the lowest points of the earth, the highest points of the earth, and everything in between, God is supreme. He is sovereign over it all. He has authority over everything. He has control over everything. Think about Psalm 135, verse 6. It says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deeps. God has no advisors. He has no one telling him what to do. He does as he pleases. And he is sovereign over everything. And it says, continue in verse 5, that the sea and the dry land are also his. Why? Because he has made them. He is the creator of everything. And this takes us back, I think the psalmist does, to Genesis 1 and 2, reflecting on that God has created everything and he has filled the earth um, as we see in the account there in Genesis 1 and 2. Colossians 1.16 tells us that Jesus is the creator. It tells us that by Jesus all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for Jesus. We must remember that as we reflect on who God is and that he is the author of all things, the creator of all things. And so we're to worship the Lord joyfully with praise, with thanksgiving. Why? Because he has authority over all and he is creator of all. And so the author continues this theme. And so look what he says in verse 6 and at the beginning of verse 7. He says, come, let us worship. Let us bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. And so we worship the Lord together. Why? Because he's creator of all. He has absolute authority over everything. We're called to worship right here um, in kind of a different sense, for a different reason. You think about this, it says that he's creator of everything, that he's sovereign over everything. So there's this grand, big thought, this big idea of who God is. But then God, right here, the author right here in verse six kind of brings it down, doesn't he? He, kinds of, he makes it personal. And how does he make it personal? He says that he is our maker, our maker. That he's our maker. Not only that, that he is our God, we are his people, the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. And so he's bringing this idea down of who God is to, to a personal level that he has even made us. And you think about this this morning, how is God a maker? In what sense? What has he made? What is he making? Think about that. I think three, three ideas this morning. The first one is this, that, that God is the maker of all. He's the maker of all. He's the maker of all people. He's the creator of all people. Think, think about this. David reflected on God making him and how God made him and in what way God made him in Psalm 139. You remember what David said? In verse 13, he says, you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. And so as he's thinking about the work of God, this beautiful work, 
He says, I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Do you hear that this morning? That's, that's the work of God in all of us in making us, that he has made us fearfully and wonderfully. And David says, my soul knows it very well, very well. David thanks God for making him. David's soul knows very well, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. That David understands that, that himself and others have been made in the image of God with great beauty, with great worth. Those who bear the very image of God. And I, I think this speaks to our day. I think we, we must speak to this. The Lord has created all people of all ethnicity, all races, all skin color. And guess what? They're all beautiful in his sight. There's a great worldview song. It goes like this. Some of you might know it. It says this. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red, yellow, black, and white. They're precious in his sight. That's big. Charlottesville and the rise of this alternative right that some have called including white supremacists goes against the heart of our creator. Goes against the heart of God. This alternative right movement is the opposite of who we are called to be and the plans that God has for us and ultimately for his creation. And so racism is evil. We, we cannot pretend that it's not present in our day and hasn't been in our past, it's most evidently so. And we all must speak against it. And we must model to the world that God is a God of all, that he has created all people in his image. Of all ethnic types, of all different walks and backgrounds, of all different skin colors, and none are inferior to another. None. And we must be representatives of that. We must respond, just as this psalm calls us to. And how does it call us to respond to a God who is our maker and the maker of all people? Well, it says, first, come let us worship and bow down. So the first thing we've got to do is we've got to seek the face of God, individually and corporately. That, that's the response of our day, of our day. Secondly, in light of our day and some of the things that are raising up around us, we must also condemn any bigotry, any racism, any hate, any discrimination whatsoever. From here out. Thirdly, we've got to reach out. Some of the things that, that are present that, that we see on the news and that ha have happened not just this week, but, but man, for years and still present. Um, we, we think they're, they're decades old. No, they're, they're the reality that maybe some of us don't live in every day, but they're the reality that, that some do live in, in every day. And it can create fear, it can create anxiety that maybe some of us don't know and don't even understand just because we, we, we don't. But it doesn't mean others don't. And so what does that mean? You and I must be sensitive. And we must seek to understand and reach out to people who are experiencing fear and anxiety because of the rhetoric of our day 
because of those who instigate hate. And we must be aware of that. We must reach out, be people who understand that. But first and foremost, we must understand that God's the maker of all. He has made everyone in his image, and none is inferior to another for any reason. Second, how is God a maker? He, he's the maker of Jewish people, of a nation. You might be saying, where do you see that in here? We'll, we'll look at this. This most definitely is something that comes out because the writer, no doubt, uh, an Israelite, a, a Jewish um, man, especially if it's David, he says right here, uh, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And then he says, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. That's, that's, that's covenant language. That's, that's God is pasturing us. And that's who God was to the Israelites. He was their shepherd and they were his sheep. And so that God is the maker of the Jewish people. We get that back in Genesis 12, that that he had called Abram out and he was going to make him uh, the father of a great nation and that he was going to bless him and this nation so they could be a blessing to the world. And so he redeemed them out of the hands of the Egyptians. And what did he give them? He gave them a specific purpose. What was their purpose? To carry the name of God to the world and to the nations, to represent God in the world. At times they didn't do the best of doing that, but that was God's plan, and he made this nation. He made this people. Isn't it very interesting when you look at some of the the movements and and inside of this, some of the white supremacist stuff, which is is awful, where do they go at? They they go to different places of different race and different color, but also to, to Jews, to Jews, and it's interesting that here we see God is the maker of all and the God the maker of the Jewish nation, yet that's where people go. That's where their hate goes toward, is the very things that God specifically has made. Ultimately, their, their hate is toward God. Third point, God is the maker of all Christians. All Christians. When I read that this week, verse 6 and 7, I was like, man, Okay, God is maker of all. God is maker of this beautiful nation, the Jewish people, who he created. But, but here he has made a new people, uh, the, the new Israel, the church. He has made them. And, and, and where do we get that language at? Think of this passage, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, where it says this, that it is by grace that you and I have been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It is the free gift of God so that no one may boast for we are what his workmanship and then look at this phrase created in Christ Jesus Jesus Christ has bought for us our salvation through his death and his resurrection and he has caused us to be born to new life and we are new creations in him second Corinthians 5 the old is gone the new has come we're this new creation John 3 we're born again and as God has made us into his people. In fact, in Colossians 3, verse 11, it says we've been renewed. We've been made new. And it says this, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew. And so all the barriers have been broken down. Circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free man. But Christ is all in all. And that's what Jesus has come to do. The, 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 the playing field, the ground at Calvary has made everything level. And Jesus has come to break down all of the barriers. And all who are in him have been created by him in Jesus Christ as a new people. I love what Billy Graham said. I was reading 
something by him. He, he's obviously said a lot of great things in his life. One of the things he, he said, and I think is so relevant when we think about Christ creating a new people and what the gospel does in our context today, really every day, the gospel has no meaning, he says, unless it helps those who are hurting or in need. That's who Jesus came for. So as those who have been made new by Jesus, our arms of love, our arms of solidarity are a powerful example of Jesus who stretched out his arms wide for all of us. And we must let those on the receiving end today of hate and hurt know that above all, there's a God who loves them deeply, dearly, and always. And that's what the gospel does. So we're called here to kneel before the Lord, to come and worship him with joyful song, with joyful shouts of thanksgiving for who he is. He's the sovereign and he's the creator of all. And then all of a sudden, kind of this interruption, right? It's almost like a child where you're in an adult conversation. I know this never happens to parents in here, just in my home, but you're like having this adult conversation and all of a sudden a kid walks in and goes, blah, 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 blah. And you're like, whoa, time out. We were, we were talking, right? And so there's this interruption that just happens right in this text. Um, but it's not a child. It's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> it's a very interesting text. We, we know that God has inspired men through his spirit to write the word of God, his word. And then within his word, he has his own interruption. Isn't it very interesting? And so, so look what happens here. Look at verse 7b. This is the stop sign. He says, Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness. I want, I want to stop there for a second. So, so kind of imagine this. We're in a worship setting like this, and we're encouraged as we've been encouraged this morning. Come, let us joyfully worship the Lord, not just in song, but with our life. Let's kneel before him. Let's be those who remember that he's our maker, that he has made a people, he has made a new people, the church, Christians today, to live for him, to glorify him, and to be, represent him in the world. And we get that, we understand that. And the Holy Spirit comes in as we hear these truths in this worship setting. And he comes in, and what he starts doing is a work in our heart. And he's pointing out truths that we've heard. And maybe simply today it looks like this. Maybe we have discriminations that we don't know about. Maybe we have some inward hate for many different reasons that we don't know about. And so the Holy Spirit just starts coming in and saying, hey, listen, man, you need to deal with this. You did deal with this. Or maybe it's some things that, hey, he's asking and calling you to do and to obey, and, and you need to do that. And so the Holy Spirit starts coming in and starts to say, hey, today, listen, listen to this. Don't harden your heart as you hear these things. Don't, don't be stubborn to them. But instead, as you leave here, be faithful to go and obey them. And so this is a very practical scene that's kind of setting up here. And, and this isn't just for settings like this. This is for any time that we come before the word of God and we're reading the word of God. This is happening. The scripture is saying to us, today, <laughs> right now, any day that's today, don't harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts. Now let me read the entirety of this through verse 11. Let's, let's kind of get the idea of what he's saying here. He says, today, 
If you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work for 40 years. I loathed that generation. And so here God is talking about the Israelites as they're in the wilderness, and he has put up with them. He's bored them. You remember Isaiah 1, he, he, he says, I've grown weary, right, of your worship, all right? Um, and so he's grown weary of them. And then it says at the end of verse 10, and said, they are a people who err in their heart, and they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, my wrath, truly, they shall not enter my rest. And so here we have this stop sign. And how do we know it's the Holy Spirit saying this? Um, if you go to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, I want to show it to you here. The first, uh, verse 7 says, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, and then it quotes Psalm 95. And so it's very interesting how the New Testament writer comes and he shows us, look how God came in on Psalm 95 and said this. And so the Holy Spirit is saying this, and he's saying, what is he saying? He's saying today. Interesting note real quick. If you go to Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4, you hear the word today five times. And it all deals with entering the rest of God. You know what, you know what I love about that? It's when God repeats something, it means it's important. And so I want you to remember that word today. When are we to heed this warning? Today. So every day that is today, he's saying, I want you to heed this. Not, not just right here in this moment. Not just when you gather with the church family. But every day, he's saying, do not harden your, your heart when you hear the voice of God. Do not harden your heart. What does it mean to harden your heart? It means to be stubborn. It means when you hear something from God and you choose not to do it, you're hardening your heart. And as many of us know, when we harden our heart to one thing, we start hardening our heart to other things. And it gets harder and it gets harder and it gets harder. And what happens is our distance from God, our fellowship with God gets greater and greater and farther apart where we just stop hearing God's voice altogether. And many times people drift away and fall away. And that is why the warning is here. Is he saying, hey, don't harden your heart. Don't be stubborn to the voice of God. When God speaks, stop, listen, and obey. Go do it. And he gives us an example of those who have hardened their hearts. He says in verse 8, do not harden your hearts as, is, as those at Meribah, at those at Massah in the wilderness. And so here the Israelite people, what did they do? Uh, these are real places but they represent an attitude. They represent the heart of the Israelite. Meribah means quarreling or strife. They quarreled against God. In Exodus chapter 17, we find this, where, man, they wanted um, things done their way in their timing instead of things done God's way in his timing. And so they had a horrible attitude, a bad attitude, and they quarreled against God. They were in great strife against God. Um, in Masa, it means testing or temptation. And so literally, uh, we hear Moses saying to the Israelite people, do not test the Lord. Do not test the Lord. 
And so these are real places, but what they represent is an attitude that the Israelites had. When they were in the wilderness for 40 years of wandering, and they tested God by demanding that he provide for them on their timing. And so their rebellion clearly revealed something. Instead of thanksgiving that we've been called to in this text, instead of praising God for who he is and recognizing who God is, they rejected him. They were unthankful. And their actions betrayed the fact that they had learned anything about what God was teaching them. That his ways are the best, his timing is the best. And they rebelled against that. They hardened their hearts. They didn't listen to the Lord. And so as a result, in verse 11, it says that they shall not enter into my rest. Specifically what that means is this generation died in the wilderness. And they did not get to see what? The promised land. That was the case for them. But what does this mean for us? What does this text mean for us today? And just like it did for the Israelites, it, it means we must carefully and intensively listen to the voice of God. As we read his word, as we hear his word taught, throughout the day as we're reminded of the word of God, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He causes us to remember the words of God. As that happens, that we would listen and obey. And that's a key characteristic of a follower of Christ. It's someone who listens and obeys the word of God. Listen to what Jesus said. Matthew 7, I want you to read this. We're going to close with these words and another passage from Hebrews. I want us to hear these words. In Matthew 7, 21 through 23, a strong word from Christ. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And so it's kind of the idea that they'll enter rest. Kind of like what he's talking about at the end of verse 11 in Psalm 95. He says, many will say to me, Jesus says, on that day, this day of reckoning before the Lord, 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 did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out many miracles. And then, Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Could you imagine hearing those words from Christ? Jesus saying, I never knew you. The scripture tells us that Jesus knows his sheep and his sheep know his voice. And Jesus will look at these who have done these religious things, who have claimed admiration, I would say mere admiration of Jesus. They like his miracles, they, they like his sayings, they like his teachings. There's a lot of that out there. There's a lot of people that like what Jesus says. They also like what other religions say and other things too. There's a lot of people that, yeah, cool with Jesus. And that's kind of what this group that Jesus is talking about, that's kind of where they were. But they lived in hypocrisy. They said, yeah, definitely down with Jesus. But yet, no life of obedience, no life of following, no action. Because ultimately, they didn't believe Jesus to be who he truly was. They didn't believe for him to truly be the Messiah, the one and the only one who can save. 
And the fruit of such belief, of believing in Christ, is obedient life. And they did not have that. Very familiar to, to James 2. It's similar in that faith without works is dead. Faith follows Christ. True faith follows Christ. Jesus says, if you want to come after me, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. But listen to this. Jesus says this next. He says in verse 24, he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, and I love this phrase, and acts on them, does them, may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. So Jesus does this. He contrasts here hearing and doing. And one who truly stops and listens to the Lord and follows with action. He is saying here, he's a wise person. He's one who puts his faith in Jesus and he practices what Jesus calls him to do. And he has built his house, he says here, on the rock. I I love that idea, especially with Psalm 95. He's built his house on the rock of salvation on God, who's his deliverer and his security. So thus, the final reckoning that Jesus talks about, that that time where we will appear before him and the exposure of who we really are and where we're really at in our walk with him, true convictions will happen of the pseudo-disciple. And so we've got to ask ourselves, what would Jesus say to me? What would Jesus say to me? Am I one who, who believes in who Jesus is, that he is the true Messiah? And, and when Jesus speaks, I, I love to listen to him. I love to hear him. But not just that. I want to obey. I want to do what he says and act. Because that's a follower of Christ. And so I think it's significant. In Hebrews 3, right after the writer quotes Psalm 95, listen to what he says. And this is what we'll wrap up on is this thought. He says in verse 12, take care, brethren. So he's talking to the church. He's saying, take care that there not be any of you who have an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day. So this is a work that the church is supposed to do to one another. We're to encourage one another. And he says, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so there's that idea of hardening our hearts, that we would not be hardened. That we wouldn't stop listening to God and start following our own way and start doing things outside of his will, but instead we would listen to him and obey him. And then he says, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. I'm a firm believer in the perseverance of the saints. That that those who believe in Christ and who he is, and have truly been saved by him, and and they've been renewed, they have a new life. That they are those who will hold fast the beginning of their assurance firm until the very end. I believe that. I believe that. And those who do such, they stop. They listen. They obey the voice of Christ. We invite John up, and we're going to enter into a time of communion. And, and as we do, I want us to think about just this one thing. Maybe you're here today, and, and you hear this phrase, 
to enter into the Lord's rest. And so, what is that? I think for the Christian today and for us today, that, that means that the Lord wants us to enter into his presence. And the one day we will all face death or the coming of Christ. And the question is, where will we spend eternity? And so, will it be in the rest of God's presence? And so, how does that happen? What do, what do you and I do? And there's many thoughts on that, obviously, in our world of, well, you've got to be a good person. You've got to do good things. Um, or maybe not do too many bad things. And, and those thoughts people have, we've all had them maybe before in our life. Maybe we let those things creep in still. And those thoughts are, are not biblical. They're, they're not what Christ has laid out for us as far as what saves us. The Lord says in his word that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day where you can be saved, where you can know him. And the Bible says that, that we can be saved by believing and trusting in Christ, that he is who he says he is, that he is the Savior, that he is the Redeemer, that he has come to save us from our sins. He, he has come to purchase us back for, from death, from, from in bondage because of, of sin that we are all trapped in. And Jesus purchased us. He, he allowed that purchase to happen or, or allowed that transaction to happen by dying on the cross for us so that we could come to know him and have a relationship with him if we would believe in his death and his resurrection that is sufficient enough for us, that he alone is the one who can save us. And that's how we enter into the rest of God and knowing that we can have eternal life. And so if you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, you are here today and you've listened to the word of God and you're like, you know what, maybe I have never done this. Maybe I've just kind of played this church thing a little bit or, or played like, hey, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm down with this or I admire who Jesus is. I like what Jesus says. But maybe you've never been to that point where you've kneeled and bowed down before your maker and have said to him, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that, that I fall short of everything you ask. I know that, that I have defamed your name. I know that I've been disobedient. Lord, forgive me and I believe in what you did on the cross, that you died for me, that you took my place, and that your death satisfied the wrath and the anger of God so that I would not pay that price, but you paid it for me. And I believe just as you rose from the dead that you will give me new life and that I will spend eternity with you now and forever. I can, I can know that. If you're there today and, and you've never trusted in Christ and, and said something similar or like that to him, confessing to him who you are and, and your need of him, let me encourage you today to do that, to take that step. And then let somebody know. Let us know that, hey, I, I've made that, that, driven that stake in the ground today and, and said, I trust Christ and I want to follow him. We'd love to come around you and encourage you today taking those steps of obedience. Let me pray.